Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Mary Lumpkin was an enslaved woman who turned her own oppression into something important and beautiful in the form of a historically black college in the South. It's a remarkable story about American ingenuity and perseverance, and it's told wonderfully by reporter and author Kristen Green in her new book. We're going to talk with Kristen about her work and about Mary Lumpkin's consequential life. It's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. How do we reimagine our most tragic places or experiences? And how can we reconstruct something that was once abusive, violent, or oppressive into something that is loving and communal and just. America is a really complicated place. And there are Americans in the past who've done things that none of us are proud of. They stole land. They committed war crimes against indigenous people. They enslaved Africans and rained terror on their lives for centuries in this country. But a lot of the people who were victimized by these forces of history are often lost to it. We don't talk nearly enough about them. Their names and stories don't get recorded. Or they get intentionally destroyed for fear of upending the power structure, and the sensibility of American exceptionalism. But oftentimes, it's those very individuals and narratives from the past that offer us guidance toward creating a better America and a better world today. These are American stories. In some ways, they are the American stories. One of those stories is about Mary Lumpkin, an enslaved woman who was forced to live in a slave jail in Virginia. Remarkably, she recreated that slave jail as a school after the Civil War was over. Today, it is Virginia Union University, one of the really great historically black colleges in our country. Mary took tragedy and shaped it into something godlike, something beautiful. She helped create a more perfect union. And she's a wonderful example of American resilience, perseverance, and yes, American exceptionalism. 
we want to talk more about Mary Lumpkin and the legacy she fits into, the context that she carries with her throughout history. Kristen Green is the author of The Devil's Half Acre, the untold story of how one woman liberated the South's most notorious slave jail. She knows an awful lot about Mary Lumpkin, and she joins us now to talk about it. Kristen, welcome to Detroit Today. Happy to be here. So uh, let's just start with who Mary Lumpkin was and how you first came across her narrative. Uh, How did she end up uh, in the Richmond, Virginia neighborhood of Shaco Bottom? Mary Lumpkin was an enslaved girl born in Virginia, likely to um, a mixed race woman who was forced to have the children of her enslaver or a relative of her enslaver or overseer. Um, Very little is known about her early life, but we know that by 1845, she was living in Chaco Bottom in a slave jail owned by Robert Lumpkin, a white enslaver and slave trader and the owner of this jail. And that is the year she had her first of five children that lived to adulthood with Robert Lumpkin and all those children were born enslaved. She came to my attention because I was a reporter working for the local newspaper, the Richmond Times-Dispatch. I had just moved back to Richmond. I'm from Virginia, and I had just moved back to Virginia because I was working on a book about my hometown, Prince Edward County, Virginia, which closed its schools for five years rather than desegregate and was one of the communities in the Brown v. Board of Education Supreme Court decision. I was working at the paper because I wanted to tell stories locally and to learn kind of more about what's happening in Virginia at that time. And I had been assigned to pick up a story for someone who was out that day um, about an African burial ground in Shaco Bottom, which is a low-lying area of Richmond, kind of below the state capitol, that floods often. And what I was asked to do that day was to, to tell a story about activists' work to try to uncover this African burial ground that was at the time covered by a parking lot for Virginia Commonwealth University, one of our state schools. And in order to do the reporting for that um, story, I needed to learn a little bit about Shaco Bottom. And so in doing research for that, I learned that nearby there had been slave jails. And two years prior to me doing this story in 2008, a genealogical, a genealogical, uh, <laughs> an archaeological dig had been done to uncover Lumpkin's jail. And in fact, in a really rare, like once in a lifetime kind of experience for these archaeologists, they had uncovered the remnants of Lumpkin's jail. Half of it was under Interstate 95 and the other half was in kind of an area of parking lots behind a train station. Um, And so the Smithsonian Magazine had written a piece about this archaeological dig, and there were just a couple sentences in there that mentioned Mary Lumpkin. Um, it told a little bit of the story of the jail, but said that that Robert Lumpkin had lived with an enslaved woman, Mary Lumpkin, who, quote, acted as his wife. And it also mentioned that she had um, helped to get her children educated and freed, and that she had ultimately inherited this jail. And although I was hard at work on another book, the story of Mary Lumpkin really stayed with me. And I found that when I finished um, my first book, Something Must Be Done About Prince Edward County, I was still thinking about Mary Lumpkin and 
and really wanted to um, help to tell her story. So that's how I came to her story. Yeah. So I, I want to pause here and take a little bit of a detour. Sure. Talk specifically about this idea of the slave jail. Um, I, I, I think that when we talk about slavery in, in the U.S. so often, um, there it's used as this kind of general term to depict bondage, right? Uh, and, and the ownership that uh, white Americans exerted over, over Africans. Um, and in some ways, I think that glosses over the more, um, the more brutal, uh, the more inhumane aspects of slavery. Slavery was a really complicated idea. Uh, it was a really, really complicated institution, and there were lots of tenets of that institution all around. Slave jails are one. So, so first, tell me about slave jails and tell me about their relationship to other particularly ugly parts of, um, of slavery. Yeah, I think your question is so important. And that sort of drew me into this story of Mary Lumpkin. I was like, what is a slave jail? I mean, I had not heard of, of one. Mm-hmm. And to learn that Richmond actually had dozens of them um, over the decades that the domestic slave trade was operated out of Richmond was like just really eye-opening for me. So the idea of a slave jail or the need for a slave jail, I guess, um, developed when the domestic slave trade became really prominent. So in 1808, America abandoned the transatlantic slave trade, outlawed it. And I initially thought, I'm sure like many people, that this was like an act of goodwill. We weren't gonna, um, we weren't gonna import slaves anymore, enslaved people anymore. But the truth was that there was a domestic slave trade that was already in place and would become really powerful and important and, and break up many, many families um, after that, the transatlantic slave trade ended. So a domestic slave trade was essentially people in the rural areas of Virginia, for example, who you know needed extra money, um, would be offered money to, to sell an enslaved person or two to a slave trader who would drive around rural roads looking for people to buy or to steal. Um, and then bring those enslaved people to somewhere like Richmond, a hub, and then sell them to enslavers from other places who had a need for more enslaved people. So as the need for more enslaved people in the Lower South um, due to cotton and um, sugar plantations grew, and as Virginia's population of enslaved people grew and also the need for so many enslaved people diminished because they abandoned essentially abandoned tobacco for grain, which required less labor. Richmond really became a a hub of the domestic slave trade, also known as the downriver slave trade. So if you have these people, enslaved people that you're buying in rural areas and you're bringing them to Richmond to sell, you have to have a place to hold them. So a slave jail doesn't mean that an enslaved person was accused of any crime or anything. They just had the unfortunate luck of being sold. So the slave jail was a place where enslaved people were held prior to sale, after sale, or both. Some of the slave jails made a name for themselves by they would feed fattening foods to enslaved people who, you know, were not well fed, were not well nourished, so that they could sort of fatten them up 
um, before sale. They would grease their skin. They would provide them new clothes and see that they were washed and cleaned before sale. Um, And they could hold them in these slave jails, which were sometimes called slave pens, um, until it was deemed to be the right time to sell them where the enslavers or the slave traders could make enough money or make as much money as they wanted. Then after sale, these enslaved people could be held for weeks, even months before whoever bought them, sometimes a slave trader or um, a plantation owner who was buying a bunch of enslaved people could chain them together and march them south in what was called a coffle. So march them to the lower south together. So the slave jails were essentially holding pens. Um, And for example, in Lumpkin's jail, he wasn't just providing this service of holding enslaved people. He provided the whole array of services that enslavers and slave traders would need when they came to either bring people to sell or to, to buy enslaved people. Um, he had, you know, what was termed a hotel, a place where these enslavers could sleep for the night. He had some sort of a restaurant and bar where they could get food and get a drink. Um, and his own home was also on the property. He also would, he agreed to torture enslaved people or punish them for some kind of infraction locally. Um, and that was how he became known as a, quote, bully trader for this, like, really insidious violence that he inflicted on enslaved people. Yeah. And when we talk about these slave jails, uh, as you point out, it's impossible to separate them from the idea of slave breeding, uh, which becomes uh, the way that new slaves are created uh, after Congress uh, bans the import of, of, of Africans uh, for that purpose. Um, and, and so then it connects to, again, this really particularly ugly part of, uh, of our history of slavery in this, in this country. Uh, uh, some four million uh, people are, are created uh, or, or, or exist uh, at the time of the Civil War as a result of, uh, of all of this, and they are traded like cattle or grain or tobacco. Uh, they, are, they are not people uh, in the eyes of the law or their enslavers. Uh, they are property. That's right. And the laws um, of Virginia were written in a way to allow this to happen. In Britain, enslaved people, I'm sorry, in Britain, the status of children followed that of their father. Um, but in America, or in Virginia, that is, um, the laws were written to say that the status of a child would follow that of a mother. And this benefited white men in two ways. One, they couldn't be held responsible for paternity, right? So they could sexually abuse enslaved women and get away with it. And secondly, they could abuse enslaved women and create new children or new property. And this was totally allowed. So um, those laws really, you know, varied from from British law, but benefited white men um, and enabled them to get away with doing whatever they wanted with enslaved women. Yeah, yeah. Um, So I I, want to go back to Mary Lumpkin now. Uh, She's sort of in the the clutches of 
this system, uh, she occupies an unusual space, I suppose, uh, in the sense that um, she was uh, at least uh, cast as uh, as this man's wife. But but talk about how she turns this slave jail into a school, which still exists today as Virginia Union University, which I think again. Uh, elevates her to this status of absolute uh, uh, remarkability. I mean, it's just such an uncanny story. Well, according to one of Mary Lumpkin's descendants, Mary Lumpkin negotiated with Robert Lumpkin. um, And she said to him, you know, you can do whatever you want with me, but, quote, these children have to be free. So from a very young age, she had self-determination um, and, you know, a very clear picture of what she wanted for her children. So she was able to ensure that her two oldest children, daughters, were sent away, you know, before they reached puberty to attend school in Massachusetts, a free state. And then while they were in school in Massachusetts, she bought a house in her own name in Philadelphia, So Pennsylvania was also a free state. Mm -hmm. This was around 1858. Um, And she moved those two daughters when they finished two years of school in Ipswich, Massachusetts. She moved them to Philadelphia and she moved her two oldest sons. So the first her first four children um, to Philadelphia. And soon she joined them with her youngest child, another son. And all five of or all six of them (laughs) were living in the home that she owned in Philadelphia prior to the Civil War by 1860. So she had already really exerted um, her her agency in that relationship and had, had laid out very clearly what she wanted for her children. It's likely that she stayed in Philadelphia during the Civil War, um, and Robert Lumpkin continued to operate the slave jail. Some of the other slave jails became... Um, Confederate jails um, or were used for other purposes, but it appears he continued to operate his jail. And after the Civil War, Mary Lumpkin returned to him, returned to Richmond, returned to Virginia. You know, it's not clear why, um, because she had been living, you know, as free for five years by then. Um, But perhaps they had struck some kind of deal and she had agreed to come back. So she returned to this broken and burned Richmond and he was operating the jail as some sort of hotel. It's hard to imagine what that might have looked like. But um, And he died a year later in 1866 and left her everything. He left her the whole jail compound. He left her the home in her name in Philadelphia. And he left her a home he had, brought, had bought his slave trader brother in Alabama. Now, she is in obviously like much better position than enslaved people were that were left nothing, that it didn't even have clothes. But she still was in a really awkward position because she didn't, you know, everything he had was worthless. Um, I mean, he had no money after after the Civil War. He'd lost all the enslaved people that were his property. And so really all he had was his property and taxes were still due, right? And so this was a huge problem for enslaved women paying taxes on, on the land that they, if they had been left land, um, how they were going to pay for it. So... At the same time, you know, groups from the north were coming down and starting schools for these freemen. Um, and religious groups in particular were coming in and trying to start schools. 
um, that would train pastors. And American Baptist Home Mission Society was one of these groups. And they had been running a school since, you know, a few weeks after the Civil War ended in Richmond, but they had been popping around to different buildings. They couldn't find anybody to rent homes to, or I'm sorry, to rent buildings to them um, or to sell them buildings so that they could operate their school. And Nathaniel Culver, a particularly um, committed pastor from the North, was becoming really distraught because he couldn't find anywhere to have a more permanent home for his school. And he happened to meet Mary Lumpkin on the street one day in 1867, or perhaps their meeting was uh, a pastor had had paved the way, Mary's pastor had paved the way for this meeting. It's unclear, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. they did meet on the street in 1867. And Mary Lumpkin heard his story and told him that she thought that she could help him, that she had a building that she could provide him. So they agreed on a three-year lease for $1,000 a year. And you know, soon after, they opened the, the doors for the school there. Um, and it was called the Richmond Theological School for Freedmen. And this school would be the cornerstone of what is now known as Virginia Union University and still operates in Richmond today. Yeah, yeah. Okay, coming up, we're going to continue our conversation about Mary Lumpkin and the remarkable thing she did uh, to turn her past into something really beautiful and important. Uh, We want to hear from you during this conversation as well. How do we reimagine spaces that have tragic histories? What would you do with spaces where Confederate soldiers sat, for instance. Uh, what do you think we should do with spaces that honor enslavers and colonists? Uh, are you working to create something beautiful where something previously tragic had existed? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or the Twitter and put comments there. We'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad that you've joined us. Our guest right now is Kristen Green, a reporter and author of the book, The Devil's Half Acre, the untold story of how one woman liberated the South's most notorious slave jail. We are talking about this story about a woman named Mary Lumpkin, who was enslaved and after the Civil War took this former slave jail and turned it into a school that exists today as Virginia Union University. I want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Call and tell us what you make of formerly tragic spaces, spaces where uh, there is difficult history, and what we ought to be doing with them today. Is there a way to take that tragedy or that pain and make it into something really beautiful? Uh, what would you do to spaces where Confederate soldiers sat or uh, exist now in statue? Uh, what do you think we should do with other spaces that honor enslavers or colonists? Uh, also, give us a talk call and tell us if you are working yourself to create something beautiful where something 
really tragic had existed before. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Kristen, before we get to our, our listeners, I do want to go back to this uh, this question of of status with Mary Lumpkin, uh, this description of her as being married to Robert Lumpkin. Uh, as I said earlier, uh, American history is complicated. Slavery is complicated. Uh, but that word, we do see it, we do see it come up in, in, uh, in history of, of, of slavery in, in this country. And often it is, uh, I guess, to be kind, a misnomer. Um, Correct. Uh, talk about how uh, that word is being used here and why it is or is not um, the appropriate way to describe it. I mean, some historians have written that, that they married after the Civil War. I found no evidence of that. And in fact, Robert Lumpkin's will, you know, refers to her as a woman who resides with me. Um, and so I had no reason to believe that they were married. You know, if they were married, that might have been spelled out. It was illegal for them to be married, um, for one thing. And you know, and she could not consent. She was, I mean, certainly after the Civil War, she could have consented. But at that point, they had been together for many years. She was 13 years old when she had her first child with him. And she may have been enslaved by him as early as, you know, around eight years old. Um, so because she could not consent, um, you know, I think I think of her as having some agency in the relationship. But really, you know, I don't think of it in a romantic way at all. Um, and so I'm trying to reframe that, you know, that she did her best to survive and to provide for her children. You know, she showed a lot of resilience and strength. Um, and I'm sure jo- she had some joy, too. But um, her life was, you know, involved a lot of pain. And I don't want to reframe this as a marriage. Um, so mm-hmm. I don't use that word when I when I talk about it. And I, you know, I refer to Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings as being the couple that well, couple's not the right word, but being, um, you know, the relationship between, you know, slave, enslaved person and enslaver that mm-hmm. that people think of when they think of, you know, someone of an enslaved woman bearing the children of um, an enslaver. And, and people have tried to cast that as a romance as well, and it certainly mm-hmm. wasn't. So I think that notion is something that we have to work on because you know if, if Americans can reframe that as if they can look at those relationships as romantic then they're really ignoring the brutality and the pain um, they're like they're recasting a really terrible moment of our history and making it something um, you know that's that's not as um, mm-hmm. as terrible as it was it's right. hard to even put into words exactly how terrible um, enslavement was and and the, you know, for women, it was particularly hard. You know, I mean, Mary Lumpkin was one of two million girls enslaved in the American South, mm-hmm. and many of them certainly endured um, sexual abuse. Yeah, uh, the, I mean, the word rape uh, doesn't get attached to these relationships. I think because of what you're talking about, right? This reluctance to ascribe the level of brutality to enslavement that that actually existed but it's a word that that you are comfortable um, using to describe this correct 
Correct. I mean, she was, when she had her first child, she was 13, right? And she was certainly enslaved by him and forced to live in his slave jail. Uh, there's no other way to describe it than rape. Yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there. We'll work you into the conversation. Let's start with Robert in Detroit. Robert, what's on your mind? Hey, how are you? Um, Good. Such a difficult subject. I mean, I don't even know how you can talk about this, uh, Stephen. I, I, I get emotional and I'm white. And uh, I, I just want to say that, you know, I, I commend you for your prof- professionalism. Um, I learned a lot about um, American slavery at, a, at an event where there were mostly um, black people talking to black people. And I, I just, I knew nothing about generational slavery and how it was different in America than other parts of the world mm-hmm. and how, you know, we know it's still going on today, slavery, but um, I highly recommend that, you know, blacks and whites really look into this because we're so ignorant and it's not taught in our schools. I also wanted to say that, you know, the Charles Wright Museum is an excellent place to go and get information, but more specifically, um, when we talk about love and, you know, rape or statutory rape and whether it's even legal to marry, um, you know, um, there's a lot of shame involved mm-hmm. for white people, for black people to know your ancestors were raped and, and treated like, you know, chattel or property. It's like, and rightly so, we should be ashamed, but we should also, you know, talk about this stuff and, and learn about it. Um, one of the things I learned was about, you know, purchasing slaves, kind of like you would purchase a house, get a mortgage. And, and that's something I wanted you to kind of talk about because your guest seems so knowledgeable and, and so interesting. Um, what effect did that have? You talked about taxes that needed to be paid. Um, you know, mm-hmm. if, if this might have been one of the reasons why, you know, the slave trade lasted as long as it did because you had to get back your money that you owed. Otherwise, you not only lost your property, but you, I mean, the, your land, but also the people you purchased. And, and, and that, to me, is fascinating. Like, how did all that work? And, and who were these banks, and how did you know? What, how was this part of the system? Yeah, yeah, Robert, it's a it's a it's a great question, and the financial dimensions of of slavery are also really complicated. I think when we talk about uh, slavery, often we think of a very simple transaction of of ownership or purchase or sale, but there was a lot of other things going on. Um, and loans, of course, were, were, were part of it. Um, um, there was also lots of other kinds of uh, transactional things. I mean, uh, the, the, the number of slaves who, for instance, were offered in, in exchange for something as a service or uh, something like that. Uh, the, the way that Early newspapers uh, made profit off of running fugitive slave ads. Right, that's a financial dimension uh, of slavery. But but uh, I, I want to give Kristen Green a, a chance to talk specifically about uh, about your question. Go ahead, Kristen. Yeah, I love this question, Robert, and and I loved how he talked about shame. I think that you know shame has has prevented us from really owning up to this history. You know, we've We've sanitized the abuse and the trauma because of our shame. Um, and Richmond in particular, you know, benefited so much from slavery. It, it was built on the back of enslaved people. It was the economy um, for Virginia. And so I like I really hope that something will be done with 
the Lumpkins Jail site that enables the story to be told in a really powerful way. And I want to get to his um, question about mortgages. I mean, I think even Robert Lumpkin was really concerned that his own children could be seized um, to pay off debts because this was so common that that enslaved people were mortgaged like you would um, mortgage a house, right? Like these these loans were written down and and he's right, the caller's right, that, that banks had to occasionally seize like whole farms of enslaved people um, because they, you know, provided loans for them. And so one of the things I read about the reason that uh, Mary Lumpkin's daughters were allowed to go to uh, Massachusetts to be educated was because Robert Lumpkin worried about them being seized. We don't know if he had a mortgage on them. Certainly, some enslavers had mortgages on their own children, right? The children that they had produced with enslaved women. Um, we don't know if he did or not. I mean, certainly if he did, he knew they could be seized. But probably they could have been seized even if he didn't have a mortgage on them. If he got into really bad financial shape, mm-hmm. he knew that his children could be taken from him. And, you know, that... Irony is not lost on me that he was really concerned about losing his own enslaved children, but yet, you know, he um, played a significant role in separating children from their parents and um, husbands from their wives. I mean, this was like one of the really terrible outcomes of domestic slavery and something that, you know, this nation will never quite recover from. Yeah. So so I also want to address this question of shame and the difficulty that we all have, I think, thinking about these things sometimes or or talking about them, Robert, and, and you asked how I manage that. And, and I have to say that, look, I, I can absolutely uh, admit to the difficulty of talking about these things and the, uh, the emotions that, that always surface when, when we have these conversations. But I will also say that um, that I, I've come to a really different space with regard to those things because of some of the things that I've learned in the last five or six years as I've been sort of digging into the past of my own family in, in the South, in Mississippi, uh, which is where my dad comes from. And uh, he was born and grew up in Natchez, which... Um, you know, uh, which was just, it was just for me where my grandparents lived uh, for for most of my life. Um, but I, I've learned so much in the last couple of years about the important role that Natchez played uh, in the slave trade. Uh, uh, it really was one of the larger uh, outposts. At, at, at one point, it was the largest uh, westernmost uh, uh, slave trade outpost, um, and I've learned on, an awful lot about my own family and uh, where our name comes from, and the role that slavery in Natchez plays in my own history. Uh, learning about those things uh, and understanding them, I think, just makes it easier to talk about. And and, and some of it is shameful and enraging and. Uh, uh, a host of other things that that you feel when you learn about these things or hear about them. But you're right that leaning into the information, leaning into the knowledge is one of the ways that that we make that possible. Uh, Kristen, I think that's an important point to make with regard to this story that that you're telling, 
there were people who tried to hide the story of Mary Lumpkin and to denigrate the things uh, that she did. Isn't that right? I mean, the story of enslaved women was essentially erased. You know, I think if you'll think back to growing up, what enslaved women you learned about, I can only remember learning about Harriet Tubman. And if you mm-hmm. think about Harriet Tubman's story, she's pistol-toting, she's sleeping under shrubs, she's like wading through creeks and bogs. Like it is not, it's a very masculine story of escape, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so the story, if you think about it, the stories get t- were getting told by white men generally. So very few narratives got through that didn't fit this kind of mold of like a dynamic escape. But it, but you know, women couldn't escape like this. Like, they had children they weren't going to leave. And so most women stayed, you know, and just tried to survive and to keep their children with them if they could. Um, So, you know, even though there are a lot of things I don't know about Mary Lumpkin, and even though she's not, like, necessarily representative of a huge segment of enslaved women because of her, you know, the unique um, privileges that she was offered because she had been chosen by Robert Lumpkin, mm-hmm. I feel like she adds to this, to the canon of, I don't know if canon's the right word, but that's the word I think of, of stories of enslaved women that help us understand this like broader picture. There were a lot of different circumstances that enslaved women were in. Mm. Um, just to add to the shame bit, I, you know, I think the knowledge, I think you're exactly right. The knowledge really is key. When I wrote my first book, Something Must Be Done About Prince Edward County, I investigated my own family's role in starting the Segregation Academy. Hmm. Uh, my grandfather was a founder. My parents both attended. They sent my my brothers and me. And so for me, I really wrestled with like what to do about my grandfather's role. Wow. And I think it all boils down to like the people are really complex. Like he could be a good grandfather to me, and he also could have, you know, made a decision that I consider like purely evil. Like mm-hmm. the decision to not just to start this school wasn't evil, but the decision to support keeping uh, schools closed in Prince Edward County for five years and denying black children education was in fact an evil decision that could have been avoided. Um, and I think it's it's okay to hold our ancestors accountable in that way, you know? I, like doing that helps you lose some of the shame. Being honest about like the, the decisions made in the past, like do not, you know, fall into line with what you believe and what you believe is right. Um, and just confronting them, I think, helps to get beyond that shame and move forward in a productive way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Coming up, we're going to continue this conversation with uh, Kristen Green about uh, Mary Lumpkin and about uh, slavery and its history and place in uh, our country. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social media. 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and we can include you that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. (laughs) 
This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest is Kristen Green, a reporter and author of the book, The Devil's Half Acre, the untold story of how one woman liberated the South's most notorious slave jail. We're talking about Mary Lumpkin, uh, who was that enslaved woman and founded Virginia Union University, which still exists today uh, on the site of that old slave jail. We're talking about what we do with difficult spaces, tragic spaces in our history. How do we give them different lives? How do we reconcile with what they were? Uh, A question that I think uh, a lot of us are asking right now about many icons and symbols in America. As always, wanna hear from you on the phones too. How are you reckoning with these things? Uh, Are you doing that in a specific way? Are you thinking about the ways we ought to be doing it as a culture, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones, and you can go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there. Let's go to Kathleen in Detroit. Uh, Kathleen, welcome to the show. I was, I, I'm concerned. My concern is that for over four or 500 years, we was enslaved, and a lot of things that we're dealing with today, because We've only been away from slavery less than a little over 150-some years. Mm-hmm. But, of course, we never really got out because here we had to go through the Jim Crow, then we had to go through civil rights, now we're going through Black Lives Matter. So these things have been embedded in us for four or 500 years, and it's only been less than 150 years, a little over 150 years. So these things are internal internal yeah. yes with, 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 with American people yeah. and this was taught if the history was taught all along the way we could learn to respect each other and have more love for each other in America I don't other than that it's no other way to make this uh, situation um, lively you right. know we need to bring it some life to it yeah. and uh, Kathleen I, I really appreciate your call and and your thoughts, um, uh, Kristen. This idea of the proximity of all of this, I think, is another difficulty we have in America. A lot of people want to say this is ancient history; it has no effect on our lives today. And of course, it's actually not that long ago. And many, many, many aspects of our modern lives are shaped by what happened back then. Oh, certainly. I mean, think about that. When I opened up, I was talking about Lumpkin's Jail and how the remnants still exist in Richmond. Like, and so I think about this, you know, our history of slavery being like those remnants of the jail. They're buried just under the surface. You know, they're right here. Um, I mean, Lumpkin's Slave Jail was one of the most prominent features of Richmond, right? And like, so many Richmond residents have never even heard of it. Like, if you tried to learn the history. There's three small plaques, like on the side of the freeway, that are what tells this really important story of both an enslaved jail and a woman who who did all these amazing things. She freed her children. She educated her children. She educated herself and freed herself. And she played a role in founding a historically black college and university. I think Kathleen's exactly right. Like, we don't teach this history. And now we're seeing this huge pushback in America to telling the truth. Um, And I think it's really going to, you know, we're seeing books banned, and this is going to really delay the efforts to make sure that the American public 
is knowledgeable about this history because it plays such an important role in like what our lives look like today. Exactly, you know, the lives that Black Americans live today are shaped by slavery. That, like she said, like that five hundred years of slavery. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Kristen Green, uh, congratulations on this really wonderful tale uh, of Mary Lumpkin, and thanks for joining us here on Detroit Today. It was my pleasure, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Okay, this show, Detroit Today, would not exist without the producers, the folks who do the research and book the guests, ask many of our questions and write a lot of the scripts on the show. They help bring all of these interesting stories and perspectives to you that you wouldn't necessarily hear otherwise. And they do it really quickly. Uh, The pace around here is pretty frenetic, trying to produce a show five days a week that brings you uh, such a broad and deep range of subjects and uh, conversations. One of the people who is one of the best at this craft, someone who is really a wizard with uh, chopping sound bites, creating podcasts, and even sometimes hosting this show, is our senior producer, Jake Neer. He has been with us on Detroit Today for several years and longer still here at WDET. He is leaving us. Today is his last day as senior producer at Detroit Today. He's off to new adventures. And so I want to welcome Jake to the studio so I can thank him for the time he's been here and wish him well in the future. Jake, I'm not happy to do this, but uh, but welcome to the studio here on your last day. <laughs> well, thank you, Stephen. And I'm adding wizard to my resume as we speak. <laughs> That's right. Feel free to take that uh, testimonial and do what you will with it. Uh, uh, so uh, talk about this idea of Moving on to something different. You and I have been working together on this show for several years now. It's hard for me, in fact, to think of a time when you weren't part of this show. <laughs> now I got to get used to that again. Well, you know, as as you do know, Stephen, I, I am the show's biggest fan, along with uh, for, former state rep and city councilwoman Alberta T- Tinsley Talabi. We are <laughs> right. the fan club, right? Uh, and for me, it's been that way for years before I even started working on this show. You know, I, I listened to this show every day for years while I was covering the state capitol for Michigan Public Radio. So I'm sad, uh, but I'm just feeling really uh, lucky and proud privileged to have the had the this wonderful opportunity to have contributed to the show in, in a meaningful way. Uh, and of course, this also means that the show is hiring now. So if uh, you're listening and you want to work for an amazing team of people on a show that really is dedicated every single day to impactful conversations, moving the community forward, consider applying. You can go to WDET.org slash jobs. Uh, the posting may or may not be there right now at this very moment, but it <laughs> should be up very soon if it's not there now. Again, that's WDET.org slash jobs. Yeah. No, we really don't want you to leave, but the idea that uh, we'll be welcoming someone new to this role is is also uh, pretty exciting, yeah. given the, the, the dynamic sort of atmosphere that we have. I mean, this is a show where we're doing... Uh, a lot of different things. And I think this show today is a great example of the depth that we try to dig into with subjects like inequality and its history. Uh, It's been a really fun place to work, and it's been a fun place to work with you, Jake. 
Oh, thank you. I mean, I, I, I feel exactly the same way. I mean, uh, talk about having uh, this opportunity to have conversations like the one that you're hearing today, um, you know, throughout the pandemic, being able to just have this space to check in with folks when when we felt so alone and isolated uh, and, and we're just trying to deal with with this and, and just had no you know, community or, or any uh, any sort of uh, place to lean on. Uh, but we provided that space here through the pandemic and we continue to for us to all lean on each other because, you know, this is a community of people who, again, they, you know, we all want to move forward together in a meaningful way and in a productive way and, and have conversations that enlighten all of us at the same time. And, you know, that that is just a, such a rare thing in the media landscape right now. Think of all the, you know, the the division and all of the, the, the rancor. Uh, this is not a place for that. This is a place for coming together. And, um, you know, again, it's just uh, such a privilege to be part of it. Yeah. So you are headed to uh, Automotive News uh, mm-hmm. to work with some good friends of mine, uh, people who I'm now uh, to take some revenge on because they're <laughs> snatching you away from our clutches. Uh, but tell us just a little about that work. So, yep, I will be, well, Automotive News, which is under the uh, Crane Communications umbrella uh, here in Detroit, uh, is doing something really exciting right now, uh, making a huge investment in audio storytelling. I mean, we've been talking so far just the two of us right now about the power of of audio storytelling. And Mm -hmm. it's a really exciting time for the automotive industry. I mean, think of the supply chain issues, electrification, uh, you know, all these other things, these global issues and, uh, and, 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 you know, workforce issues. It's sort of a remaking of this industry that you cannot disconnect from Detroit or our region or the rest of the country or the world. So uh, I think that it's such a great opportunity to go in and find those stories and talk Talk about uh, how this, all of the exciting and challenging things happening. So I'm, I'm really excited to head up that effort to, uh, to do that. And, and you know, we'll be, uh, we'll be in touch soon about what we're up to. <laughs> I was going to say, you're going to try to get people to do segments <laughs> on our show. I know uh, you will. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Not. <laughs> all right, Jake. It has really been great uh, having you as part of our team. Uh, for all of this time, and uh, we're going to miss you, of course, but uh, we really wish you well in this new endeavor. No, thanks so much, Stephen. I really, really appreciate that. Okay, that is going to do it for us this week. Come back on Monday when we're going to talk with author Elizabeth Williamson about her new book on Sandy Hook, which explores how conspiracy theories became mainstream. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll continue the talk conversation on Monday.